folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. Welcome all the way from Georgia. Your word is spreading. I know, right? We're attracting folks from across the country. <laughs> Whenever I start a new class up the hill, I always have a little competition to see who's come the farthest. <laughs> yeah, and there's usually like in India or a Panama or something like that. <laughs> well, welcome back everybody. We are in week four of five, so we're nearing the end. Uh, and today, finally, I'm going to spend some time talking about Knox himself, um, the biggest name that most of us recognize attached to the Scots Confession. And so uh, today and then next week also, I'll talk uh, quite a bit about him, as, and then we'll get into uh, our confession chapters. Knox lived um, from about 1514 to 1572, so not a bad run for that time period. But uh, in terms of the background to his life, the thing we have to remember is that in the middle of the 16th century, the balance of power in Europe was a mess. And in that way, it's sort of like the opposite of the period you had leading up to World War I, where everything was balanced very carefully and was just waiting for something to set it all to, uh, to flames. Well, in the 16th century, it was up for grabs, and one of the big reasons why was Protestantism. Now, Europe, they'd been fighting amongst themselves all through the previous century and things, but that was usually pretty small and localized, uh, often about who was going to control sections of northern Italy or the lowlands, uh, fairly contained regional conflicts. But now all of a sudden, as you have nation states emerging in a much stronger way, being able to field much uh, more uh, powerful armies, uh, you have what we might consider more geopolitics, like the bigger picture politics where um, for some of these countries, their whole existence was at stake. And this was true uh, especially for England, as by the time we reach the middle of that century, uh, once Queen Elizabeth uh, takes the throne, it's really the only Protestant major power. And it has to worry about all of the other major powers who would love to see it stop existing, especially Spain. So um, the main players in this uh, geopolitical uh, game are Spain, England, France, and Germany. Then the thing you have to remember is, for a great deal of this period, Spain and Germany are ruled by the same people. It's the Habsburg dynasty, um, the same family, and they're very, very committed to the Catholic cause, and uh, they really don't like France, and they really don't like England. Now that pair of dislikes kind of makes their politics complicated because England and France are enemies. They have been for a long time, right? They still don't really like each other, even though they've been on the same side of a couple big wars in the last hundred years or so. Um, traditionally speaking, England has much more of an affinity for Germany 
right? 20th century saw that go a different direction. But in this period, France and England are mortal, mortal enemies, constantly fighting. Uh, the English king always feels as though he has a claim on the crown in France, or at least great portions of French territory. Uh, up until the late uh, 1400s, uh, England controls significant amounts of territory in France. Finally, um, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, in the middle of the 1500s, loses the last foothold that England had in France, the city of Calais. Uh, across the channel. So uh, England and France, no love lost. Another complication is that uh, Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, was married to King Philip II of Spain. So at least for the three or four years she was on the throne, there's a strong connection between England and Spain. Now, uh, if we take a step back and think about that Habsburg dynasty controlling um, Spain and Germany, if we look at the Germany part, the Holy Roman Empire, there's this blood feud between them and France. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor in this period, and Francis I, the King of France, cannot stand each other. Uh, and they are constantly fighting back and forth. And um, at one point, Francis I even let some of the Ottoman Turkish Navy winter in his Mediterranean ports so that they can get an early start on raiding Germany the next year, right? Uh, that's how much they don't like each other, is they'll team up with folks from another religion, right? Uh, and Francis and Suleiman uh, of the Ottoman Empire have various agreements one with another so that Suleiman can keep Charles busy and then Francis can invade and all kinds of things back and forth. So lots of politics and military move movements and war going on. So England has this traditional alliance with Spain because it doesn't like France. Now Scotland, who do you think they have an alliance with? Any guesses traditionally? Right, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So Scotland doesn't like England trying to control it. So who's England's enemy? France. So Scotland teams up with France so that you can have this kind of pincer movement against England. So if England is looking like it's going to invade France, well France will send some money up to Scotland and we'll get some border wars going on to distract the English and keep them from invading, right? So England's tied up with Spain, Scotland is tied up with France. But uh, all of this gets unsettled once Scotland moves toward Protestantism, right? Because France is a very Catholic country at this period, and all through this period, it's having a num number of reactionary events against Protestants, killing a number of Protestants. So as Scotland becomes more Protestant, the connection to France begins to weaken. And then especially when Elizabeth comes to the throne in England, there starts to be more of a positive relationship between France and e or Scotland and England. Until finally, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England, when Elizabeth dies, and you have the realms united. Now, at this time, in the lead-up to um, the Reformation in Scotland, power in Scotland was shared between Mary de Guise, who was French, and the Dowager Queen of Scotland. She had been married, I think it was James V, I think was her husband. He was James Stuart. Stuart is the last name of the ruling house of Scotland. 
marries this French noble, right? Scotland and France are teamed up. And they have a daughter, Mary Stuart, who is uh, married to, off to the crown prince of France, who then dies young. Uh, unfortunately for her, when she was like 17, he dies. But until she comes of age, Mary de Guise and some, another Scottish lord are kind of keeping things running in Scotland. And all of this time, there's more and more impetus for a Scottish Reformation coming from uh, especially two classes of people. One of them are the burghers, the, the city townspeople, the middle class, the skilled workers. They are becoming more and more economically important and they are consequently wanting more and more self-determination and more and more of a say in how uh, their society is running. So they're kind of this mediating layer between the lords and the peasants, and they're wanting to be able to make uh, more decisions for themselves. And they could put pressure on the lords economically, right? Because the lords are always needing loans for this, that, or the other thing. And these folks were generally educated um, at least in their vernacular language, maybe not in Latin, but you need a certain amount of free time and money to become literate, right? So these folks have that, and as a consequence, they're tied in with what's happening in the world, and they're increasingly disenchanted with the Catholic Church for what they see as its misadministration, right? These are people who run businesses or, or run trades, Right? They know how to manage things, and they're saying this is not being managed well. So why would we let them keep doing it? Right? We have the skills to manage. Uh, they see it as corrupt. They see lots of immorality. And just to take a step back, in the um, 1530s, the late 1530s, the Pope actually commissioned a number of cardinals to make a study of the Catholic Church and uh, make suggestions for reformation. And two of the big-name cardinals who were involved with this are Contarini and Carafa. Carafa would later become pope. Contarina uh, died, and Contarini uh, but was an interesting guy. But this, this report came back and said all the same things. Misadministration, corruption, immorality. So the church itself knew it had these problems. They just couldn't decide on how to address them. Uh, and in Scotland, they're calling for more and more uh, freedom from the church. One other uh, factor that at play in Scotland is that at this time, the church controlled approximately 50% of the land in Scotland. So you can imagine then, not necessarily the townspeople who see this stuff going wrong and they like to change, but think about then the lords or even the lairds. Uh, so you have nobility, which is really what we think of as the high end. So that's like earls and dukes and things. Uh, but then you have what in Scotland are called the lairds. They're like lesser lords, barons and things like that, lower level. But these folks want to expand. And there's all this land tied up in the church. And usually it's pretty good land, right? That generates a lot of income. So in addition to being viewed as mismanaged, they're just tying up a lot of resources that could go into uh, bettering the lives of these lords and lairds or uh, strengthening Scotland as a national unit, right? And so there's some disenfranchisement and dissatisfaction uh, uh, there as well. There's also this problem of excessive taxes in Scotland 
coming from the church. So you got to think about that 50% of the land. There are peasants and things tied to that land, right? And in the feudal system, you can't just up and leave, right? So they're pretty well tied there, and they're being taxed very heavily by their lords, which in this case happens to be the church. And so they're becoming very unhappy about that. And then you've got the kings and the queen taxing them and so on. It's becoming quite a financial uh, burden. Often uh, in Europe, uh, where similar situations existed, you would then have monasteries who would be very friendly to the poor and help, uh, help support the poor and supplement their food supply and things like this. But the monasteries in Scotland were notoriously corrupt themselves. So that wasn't helping or mitigating things. So really, um, in Scotland, you have one of the most stereotypical examples of uh, the story that gets told about why Protestants ended up breaking away from the church. The story is more or less true depending on what region you look at when you're telling it, but Scotland is one of the kind of textbook examples for all of these trends. The middle class wanting more determination, the upper class feeling like there's way too many resources tied up, the lower class feeling oppressed by tax burdens, right? All of that is really very much happening in Scotland. So that's by way of background. Knox himself. Knox had an interesting personality. He uh, kind of understood himself along the lines or along the pattern of an Old Testament prophet. So we think about people like Amos, we think about people like Hosea, Isaiah, uh, Malachi, some of these other folks who kick around and we read their stories and the kinds of uh, symbolic actions that they performed or the kinds of pronouncements that they make. This was the role model that Knox took for himself, right? To be this kind of a figure, a public figure who, um, I mean, if you view it from the other side, is a, ra a religious rabble-rouser, right? So he understand his, understood his calling to, be, to live out that sort of a mission. And by all accounts, he did it really well. <laughs> he was one of these guys who people could only take so much of uh, before it was time for him to go on to another city uh, because of his personality. Uh, so his job, as he understood it, was to call to people's attention their sinful failings and call them to repentance. So he's just always pointing out what people are doing wrong. That's what he seems, sees as his job. And he was particularly concerned, like uh, the Old Testament prophets, he's particularly concerned with the sin of idolatry, which he saw as rampant in the Catholic Church at the time. So idolatry was one of his main themes. And he had a very Old Testament imagination, right? He understood it as a pattern for his own life, but he also just understood it as a way of understanding what's going on in the world around him. So you read his writings, and he wrote this big history of Scotland. It's like three volumes long. And all through it, he's drawing connections between things that happened around him in the Reformation of Scotland and biblical stories from the Old Testament. This person was like that person, and this person was like that person, and so obviously this is the sort of thing that happened. 
right? And this was his way of trying to understand current events, right? Well, we see this thing happening and this thing happening that's like this, so we can expect that. And so he was always labeling um, public figures in his orbit with some kind of Old Testament character, because that's his way of making sense of what's going on. So he sees the Old Testament very much as a pattern for what is happening uh, and what will happen in his own time. Uh, and also, that tells him how to handle what's happening, right? It's kind of a predictive uh, and instructive feature of the Old Testament. He seems to have thrived, at least to some extent, on confrontation. So just by a show of hands, how many of us have known somebody who just seems to be energized by confrontation with people, right? We've all met these kind of people. Thankfully, um, there aren't as many of them as there might be, but there's still plenty of them around. And uh, Knox seems to have been one of those people. Um, Luther also kind of had that personality. He found energy and clarity in butting heads with people. Uh, Calvin was the opposite. If Calvin could have been left alone with his books all of his life, he would have been perfectly happy. He hated having to butt heads with people, although he felt compelled to do it. Um, but Knox gets energized by it. And he had a reputation for being unnecessarily inflexible. <laughs> right? Uh, we might say stereotypically Scottish or Presbyterian, we could even say, right? Unnecessarily inflexible. Once he, he ha thought he had something figured out, that's what had to be, that's what was right, and he wasn't going to make any compromises. Well, of course, if you're more inclined to make compromises, then this guy begins to present a problem for you. And uh, his speaking voice apparently was very loud. He could make himself heard. So much so that they nicknamed the largest cannon at Edinburgh Castle after him. They called that cannon John Knox because of the way it thundered. He seems to have been born near Haddington. Well, if you know um, Scottish geography, you've got Edinburgh, and it's kind of on this little bay, and the coast kind of swings down below, and right about here is Haddington a little south and east of Edinburgh. He was born around 1514 to, relatively, uh, to parents of relatively humble social standing, probably attended some schooling before he went to the University of St. Andrews. Uh, now, we don't have any record of his graduation, so he probably didn't complete um, a course of study at the university, but he did have some university education, and he had enough that he was then ordained uh, as a priest. But um, there were so many priests in Scotland at this time that the church didn't have anything for him to do. And so this was another problem because, of course, priests aren't um, held or aren't under normal civic law jurisdiction at this time, right? So you've got all these people running around Scotland who can't be held accountable to the Scottish law. That was another problem. But Scott, or Knox needed something to do. So uh, he made his ends meet as a notary, so kind of as a low-level legal professional, but then also tutoring children, uh, giving them the basics of education. Uh, his life got more interesting when it, George Wishart 
came on the scene. George Wishart was a Reformation preacher, heavily influenced by the Swiss uh, Reformed tradition, and he had been in exile. He'd been kicked out of Scotland for a while. He came back in the early 1540s and spent a couple of years traveling around preaching. And Knox heard him and was very enamored by him and became very closely associated with him. And the stories even describe Knox functioning as Wishart's bodyguard traveling around with him carrying a claymore, which is a big traditional Scottish sword, uh, as they traveled and functioning as his bodyguard. But Wishart was eventually arrested by the pro-French powers, by the Catholic powers there in Scotland, and they burned him at the stake in 1546. And this was a very traumatic incident for Knox. I think he had PTSD from this honestly, because of um, how he reacted to the threat of religious violence for the rest of his life. Um, it, it really scarred him psychologically, and the danger of that kind of religious persecution just haunted him. And it motivated a lot of the very extreme and condemning rhetoric that he used uh, against Mary Tudor, in England during that period, but also against Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, once they're both in Scotland in the 1560s. I mean, Knox just did not trust her farther than he could throw her, always expected her to start persecuting and burning people, Protestants at the stake at any moment, and I think a lot of it goes back to this experience that he had with uh, his friend George Wishart being burned at the stake. Uh, Wishart's an interesting guy in his own right, and just a few years ago, the University of Edinburgh established a, theological, uh, a scholarship for theological study called the George Wishart Scholarship, so he's, he's still remembered there. Uh, Knox was not the only friend that Wishart had. Uh, there were some lairds, some of those lesser, lower-level lords in Scotland who uh, had appreciated Wishart, and they were unhappy that he had been killed, so they have a little uprising and they occupy St. Andrew's Castle. And that was where Wishart had been executed, and a cardinal lived there. And so they killed the cardinal in revenge and occupy his castle. And Knox uh, goes there and seeks shelter with them from any kind of reprisals. And this is when Knox received his call to be a Reformation preacher. He preached his first sermon there in St. Andrew's Castle during this period of occupation. And that was in the year 1547. Eventually, the French set up some uh, military units. Uh, the castle fell a few months later, and Knox and others were put as prisoners of war into a French galley to row. And he was there imprisoned on this galley for two years uh, before he was freed by a prisoner swap in 1549. So, a little bit of a rocky start there for Knox. He had to live through some things in the late 1540s. After he's released from the galley, he's down in France at that time, he travels up to England and ends up being made, uh, officially given a position as preacher in Berwick and Newcastle which at this time are rough border towns at the very north of English territory, right up there at the border with Scotland. So they're like, we got this Scottish guy, he'll be good, he'll understand those northern barbarians, right? But uh, while he's up there, he's being very critical of uh, Catholicism and especially of the Mass, 
and um, this is still a period of transition for England. We're not to marry Tudor yet, uh, Bloody Mary. Uh, this is during the reign of Edward VI, who was a boy and had protectors and guardians ruling in his stead. Uh, and they didn't want too much uh, drama. So he gets in some hot water there, but they still make him a chaplain to King Edward VI. And that gives him um, some access to things going on in the church at that time. And he's actually involved in one of the revisions of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the uh, English liturgy and prayer book. He criticized the practice of kneeling for communion. And it was included in that prayer book. But he succeeded in having some commentary inserted to make very clear that just because you're kneeling to receive communion doesn't mean you are adoring the sacrament, right? With, which he thought was a form of idolatry. Right? Back to the idolatry theme. Uh, eventually, he was offered uh, the position of bishop in the city of Rochester, but he thought that that was an attempt to buy him off, to co-opt him, to make him dependent so that he would not be as open with his criticisms. And so he did not take that position. Uh, and then Edward died, King Edward VI. And his sister, Mary Tudor, became queen in 1553 and pretty quickly began imprisoning Protestant leaders. And she very much wanted to take England back to how it was before it split with Rome. So Mary Tudor, uh, you may remember, is the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, who was Spanish. She was uh, the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor and uh, very much a devout Catholic. And this is her daughter, and she wants it to go back to before uh, her dad had her mom executed, basically. So she starts imprisoning Protestant leaders, rolling back the reform in the church, uh, started executing Protestant leaders, even executed Thomas Cranmer, who had been her father's Archbishop of Canterbury. And all of this earned her that nickname, Bloody Mary. Knox very quickly went into exile in the continent. He wasn't, you know, all of this triggered him really badly, and he didn't think he could hang around for it, and so he took off uh, pretty quick in 1554, went to Europe to spend some time there, and I will pick up his story next week. And so we're doing all right on time again, and we've got a bit of a cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Knox in Europe? But for now, let's turn to the confession. Hang on until after the commercial. Yep, come back after the commercial break. After these notes from our sponsors, the various distilleries of Scotland. <laughs> so last time we went through chapter 15, so we'll pick up with chapter 16. And chapter 16 is on the kirk, uh, which is the Scottish word for church. It's very similar to the German Kirche, which is uh, their term for the church. And this is where we get our term church, because in Greek it's ecclesia, which is very different sounding. <laughs> right, so it comes through the German and through Scotland into English. And um, here we see the confession identify the church as 
one company and multitude of men, sorry ladies, chosen by God who rightly worship and embrace him by true faith in Christ Jesus. So that's how they're defining it. This group of folks who worship correctly through proper faith. Right? Worship and faith are kind of the two nodes that define who is Christian, who is part of the church. Now, worship is an external thing, right? You can fake it. And throughout the Reformation period, you have this concern with uh, whether or not people are being sincere in their faith. And you have uh, attempts, uh, to various extents, uh, to try to figure out who is sincere and who is not. So you can fake worship, you can confess faith, faith without meaning it, and the Scots Confession just acknowledges that this is the case. So if you drop to the bottom of that page, you see them say that the Kirk is invisible, known only to God, who alone knows, who, knows whom he has chosen, and includes both the chosen who are, uh, we'll stop there, so invisible, known only to God. So you can walk into any assembly, any congregation, and see a bunch of people who are engaged in worship and who, you know, say they believe. Not all of them are going to do those things sincerely, right? It's a mixed company is the language that gets used. In Latin, it's corpum uh, mixum. Mixum? I should have studied Latin better, but I think that's what it is. Corpus mixum. Um, so the true church isn't the church that you can see with your physical eyes. It's the church that God sees, and it's invisible to anybody else. So you've got to build in this wiggle room just because people might be faking. And so then the question is that we're going to get to in chapter 18 is how if you walk into an assembly and you can't see with the eyes of God, how should you judge whether or not this is an assembly that you should be part of? Right? And that's what chapter 18 is going to get to. Now, but still in 16, notice that we hear, if we jump back up to about an inch down that paragraph, chapter 16, this Kirk is Catholic. See that? If you drop straight down from that, you see that it's of saints. Right? Um, if you go three lines down in the middle-ish, you see one kirk. This is sounding familiar to anybody? One holy Catholic, right? So the Scots Confession is riffing on the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. We call these the marks of the church, the one holy Catholic. And then in the creed, you also have apostolic, right? Four marks. Apostolicity is not included in chapter 16 because that's a point at which the Scots Confession needs to say more about how it understands itself differently from the Catholics on apostolicity. We're actually going to see that in 18. But here we get one Catholic and holy. And notice it says Catholic that is universal, not because it's geographically extended, uh, not because it's one single institutional structure, but because it in contains the chosen of all ages, of all realms, nations, and tongues. 
uh, be they Jews or be they of the Gentiles who have communion in society with God the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is another reason why that invisibility is important. Because just because you have an institution that's all over the place doesn't mean that's the Catholic Church, right? The church that we're going to describe as one holy and Catholic is invisible to the eye. Only God sees it, right? So uh, very different from uh, the prevailing Catholic interpretation. And then it says, out of this kirk, there is neither life nor eternal felicity, right in the middle of the paragraph. See that? This jumped out at me just this morning. Out of this kirk there is neither life nor eternal felicity. Therefore, we utterly abhor the blasphemy of those who hold that men who live according to equity and justice shall be saved, no matter what religion they profess. For since there is neither life nor salvation without Christ Jesus, so shall none have part therein, but those whom the Father has given unto his Son, Christ Jesus. And those who in time come to him, avow his doctrine and believe in him. How do we feel about that? Yeah. I think it makes a few assumptions. Um, out of this kirk, there is no, neither life nor eternal felicity, but they've already told us, or will tell us at the bottom of the page, that this kirk is invisible. Right? So one, uh, how can you be sure that it's not hiding somewhere where you would least expect it? Right? Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, uh, as the joke goes, but maybe you also don't expect to find the Kirk everywhere you find it. Therefore, we utterly abhor what they call this blasphemy, that people are saved no matter what religion they profess, but they've just been belaboring the point and will continue to belabor the point that profession isn't necessarily the important thing, right? Because you can fake it. For there is neither life nor salvation without Christ Jesus, and then so, X, Y, or Z. There is the assumption that they're making that I find interesting is that you have to come to him, avow his doctrine, and believe in him in order for you to find salvation in him. But that's not spelled out. To say that there is neither life nor salvation without Christ Jesus is not necessarily to say the exact same thing as you have to consciously believe in him in order to get it. Right? Those are two different assertions. And they just move from one to the other without making the argument. Right? So if the true Kirk is invisible, and you never know where you're going to find it. And if profession is always at, always at least needs to have something of a question mark next to it, then who's to say that life and eternal felicity, life and salvation in Christ might not be found anywhere? So that's just me playing with the Scots Confession a little bit. Uh, teasing some of the logic out. This is obviously not what they intend, but I like to find seams in the logic in some of these documents when I can. All right, chapter 17. 
This is a very traditional chapter on the immortality of souls. Um, see that term, the Kirk militant, right in the middle? Kirk militant, the church militant. If you look at the bottom of the previous page in 16, you see Kirk triumphant. This is a classical distinction. Uh, the church exists in two forms. The church triumphant are all the Christians in heaven, right? They've triumphed over the earth and now they're resting. The Kirk militant are the rest of us who are down here still, you know, fighting a good fight. Right? So Kirk militant, Kirk triumphant. And what they're saying here on the immortality of souls is that when you die, you go somewhere else and you are not asleep, right? you have to experience either joy or torment. So, where is it here? Uh, the chosen departed are in peace and rest from their labors, not that they sleep or are, and are lost in oblivion, uh, but they're delivered from all fear and torment and all temptation, which we're subject to while we're still kicking around down here. On the other hand, the re reprobate and unfaithful have anguish, torment, and pain that cannot be expressed. And neither one or the other is sleeping in such a way that they feel no joy or torment. So, very much that image that we've had before of God as king in the castle, and you're either part of God's court where you get to eat all of the great things and enjoy life, or you're down in the dungeon. Right? So, still this very medieval uh, frame of mind in that chapter. Chapter 18. The notes by which the true Kirk shall be determined from the false and who shall be judge of doctrine. Scott's Confession makes this distinction between marks of the church, which are one holy Catholic and apostolic, and notes. So the notes are how do you identify whether you found a congregation that includes people who are of the true Kirk, right? So you're walking down the street, you've, Main Street, you've got a number of different options. How do you figure out where you're actually going to get to worship God properly, learn proper doctrine, etc.? Right? The identification question. Also in this chapter, we get some very um, unflattering things said about Judaism. So, since Satan has labored from the beginning to adorn his pestilent synagogue with the title of the Kirk of God, drop down a little, so it is essential that the true Kirk be distinguished from the filthy synagogue by clear and perfect notes, lest we get deceived. Okay? So the worst thing that they can think, the worst insult that they can think to lob at Catholics is to call them Jews. right? Problematic. That's how they're using it. Um, so we Reformed folks have a very complicated relationship with Judaism, as I've mentioned before. Um, our tradition tends to love ancient Judaism and tends to want to see ourselves as standing in a direct line with Israel as people of God in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. But then we also tend to see ourselves as replacing them, which means that Jews who continue to live and walk around today 
our tradition tends to interact with very negatively, at least historically speaking. Um, often rabbinic Judaism, modern Judaism, is understood as the epitome, the clearest possible example of human unfaithfulness. So you call other Christians that you don't agree with Jews. Now, sometimes people try to make a distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Anti-Judaism is when you're anti the Jewish religion for a theological reason, whereas anti-Semitism would be you are anti-Jewish people for racist reasons. I personally don't find this distinction compelling. Um, it tries to operate along the whole hate or love the sinner, hate the sin distinction. Right? It's not about the person, it's about the idea or the action or what have you. But that distinction breaks down on questions of identity. Right? Because for a faithful Jewish person at least, you can't separate out who they are as a person and how they live their Jewish belief. Just like we wouldn't ask a Christian person, a faithful Christian person to do that. And the same, um, the same identification issue holds with uh, questions of gender and sexuality, right? These things are tied together inseparably. So anti-Judaism very easily slips over into anti-Semitism, and for that reason is very, very dangerous. We need a renewed theological imagination, not just what we're getting from the Scots Confession. So it's unfortunate that they include um, these sorts of statements. Moving on, um, about an inch and a half in the middle, the notes, signs, and assured tokens. See that bit? Whereby the spotless bride of Christ is known from that horrible harlot. So now we're getting some, some uh, slut shaming right here as well. They are not sex positive. The false Kirk. We state, are neither antiquity, usurped title, lineal succession, appointed place, nor the numbers of men approving an error. This is the question of apostolicity, right? One holy Catholic, apostolic. So there are different ways of defining what it means to be apostolic, and these are all explanations that you get in the Catholic tradition. That it has to do with being the oldest. Right? Being able to say that your church has been around longest, having some kind of title. So, for instance, the Pope called them, calls himself uh, the Vicar of Christ, and before that it was the Vicar of Peter, right? the representative of Peter or Christ. Um, lineal succession, the fact that they can say, well, I was put in place by so-and-so who was put in place by so-and-so who was put in place by so-and-so, all the way back to the apostles and Jesus, right? Appointed place, uh, you're the bishop of Antioch, you're the bishop of Rome, you're the bishop of X, Y, or Z. Um, and then the numbers of people approving, like everybody agrees with us, right? Or most people agree with us, you guys are the minority. None of those things the Scots Confession wants to say count. So they're disagreeing about apostolicity here. And why? Then they give you a number of uh, biblical examples, right? Cain was before Abel and Seth, but he was bad, right? So you just work through different examples here. Until you get to the notes of the true Kirk. Therefore, we believe and confess to be, first, 
the true preaching of the word of God, second, the right administration of the sacraments, and lastly, ecclesiastical discipline uprightly ministered. So, you've got to preach true doctrine, you've got to do the sacraments properly, and you have to live and maintain a Christian life in your community. All right, those are the three things. The um, discipline piece is new here. Um, Calvin, for instance, well, put it this way. Melanchthon gave us two marks, preaching and sacraments. Calvin, I would argue, gives us two and a half. He says sacraments, but he says the word of God rightly preached and heard, right? Which starts to get into then what do you do with it? So he's edging in that direction. But by the time we get to the Scots Confession, it's just straight up, there's three, right? Preaching, sacraments, and then how you live or what you do with all of that. And so this is part of the, the focus on ethics that, and, and how you live out your Christian life that is a very important part of the Reformed heritage. So wherever you, these notes are seen and continue for any time, be the number complete or not, there, beyond any doubt, is the true Kirk of Christ. If you can find a congregation that has one or more of these, right? Because if you've got true preaching, eventually the others will come into line. If you've got right administration of the sacraments, eventually the others are going to come into line because you're having real communion with Christ. If you've got proper discipline, eventually the others are going to come into line as you're working out that discipline, right? So as long as you can identify one of these in a congregation, you're okay. And that's a true church. This is the chapter that just keeps on going. If you flip the page. Next, we get into questions of Scripture. True doctrine, now they need to define a bit for us, since that is a mark, right? Um, and eventually they're going to talk about the sacraments in later chapters and their right administration, um, kind of filling out the definition of how you spot these marks or put them into place. But they, uh, they follow doctrine contained in the written word of God in the Old and New Testaments in those books which were originally reckoned canonical. They are ruling out here everything that Protestants call the Apocrypha, um, or uh, what biblical scholars call intratestamental literature. Basically what happened is you have a set of Jewish scriptures written in um, Hebrew, and then they get translated into Greek uh, in the second century BCE in what's called the Septuagint. And along with them, you then get some other things that were originally written in Greek. And then the early church used the Septuagint, all of those things, until the time of the Reformation, when they said, no, no, let's go back to the Hebrew stuff, the stuff that was originally written in Hebrew, because they're humanists, they want to get the oldest stuff. And some of that intertestamental stuff is where passages referring to things like praying for the dead and purgatory can be found, which Protestants aren't thrilled about. So if we just chop those out and leave them to the side, we don't have to worry about that, right? <laughs> So this is why Protestants and Catholics have different Bibles. That's, that's the piece that are in Catholic Bibles that are not in Protestant Bibles. Right? So they're, they're saying, we're not paying attention to any of those. 
but in all of these writings in the Old and New Testaments, we affirm that we have all things necessary to be believed for the salvation of man, and they're sufficiently expressed. Notice it does not say all things necessary, period. It's not saying that everything you need to know about everything is contained in the Bible. It's saying everything you need in order to be saved is contained in the Bible. So then, as it keeps going on about proper interpretation, about the Holy Ghost speaking in Scripture and in what Christ did in command, how uh, the Bible and any other revelation of the Holy Spirit has to agree with itself because the same person, the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself, right? All of this stuff refers to what's in there that's necessary for salvation, right? They're just drawing a line around it. It's not just everything that it talks about. It's not everything it happens to say in passing. It's just what's necessary for salvation, which is important. In our country, uh, the doctrine of inf biblical infallibility wants to extend this to everything. So if uh, the Bible seems to say something hidden away in a psalm somewhere, uh, in passing, that would rule out... Um, I don't know, quantum physics, then quantum physics must not be true, right? Because the Bible is 100% true. It's like Scott's confession is saying, yeah, it's 100% true when it comes to salvation, but that's the only thing it's trying to do. Like the rest of it is not the point, right? And then by the end of the chapter, we're supposed to interpret everything in terms of the rule of faith and the rule of love, right? So you use a basic theological framework to interpret scripture, and if your interpretation of scripture goes against, say, the doctrine of the Trinity, then you're doing it wrong. But then you also use the rule of faith, which is or the rule of love, love of God and love of neighbor. So if your interpretation of scripture leads you to act in such a way that you do not love God or neighbor, then you're doing it wrong, right? So those are kind of the big picture frameworks for how you go about interpreting. So in chapter 19, we hear about the authority of Scripture being from God, not men or angels specifically. Couldn't, even, couldn't possibly be from women either. Right? That's just not even entering into the question. <laughs> um, what's going on there is another argument with Catholicism. Catholics and Protestants have different ways of understanding how the biblical canon came together. For um, the Catholic tradition, when they look at this, they see the bishops identifying those writings that match with the gospel and doctrine that they, sh they hold, right? And then collecting them together and saying, here, this is preservation of the doctrine that we've been, you know, communicating. Protestants read it and say that the church recognized in these texts the voice of God, right? That in reading these texts, they encountered anew, again, uh, the words of Jesus that were spoken. So, on the Catholic interpretation, it's more, um, the church is more active in assembling these things. On the Protestant interpretation, the church is more passive and receives these things. Does that make sense? 
So uh, when chapter 19 says the authority is from God, not humans, it means the church always is in this passive receptive mode when it comes to scripture. Scripture comes to the church from God, the church receives it and listens to it, as opposed to the church putting scripture together and giving it to, I don't know, the people in the pews, right? Or in this period, standing in the, in the cathedral. They'd, Protestants are the ones who came up with pews. Well, I mean, if you're going to stand and talk at people for an hour, right, you're probably going to have to let them sit down. So that's what's going on in 19. And then 20, really quickly as we reach the end of our time, uh, continuing on the conversation of scriptural authority, now with reference to councils, right? Because you have these councils in the history of the church, and basically what they're saying here in chapter 20 is that the church receives councils but, and the determinations of councils always critically. So we do not receive uncritically. This is the bottom of page 20. Whatever has been declared to men under the name of general councils. Why? For it is plain that being human, some of them have manifestly erred. Right? They made some mistakes. And it's not hard to point to these. Like, honestly, for anybody, because you've got to remember, there was a period in time when there were three popes, right? Everyone's going to say something went wrong there, right? And there were a bunch of councils involved in trying to fix that. So it's not hard to say that there's some interesting things that happen in councils. They're going to say, we're only going to accept from these councils everything that makes sense to us understood through Scripture. And as you're moving through this chapter, they're going to make the argument that the councils knew this and the people at the councils aren't trying to make 100% true pronouncements that are going, to, are going to be in effect for all time. So uh, they explain in the middle of the chapter, the reason why the general councils met was not to make any permanent law which God had not made before, nor yet to form new articles for our belief, nor to give the word of God authority, much less to make that to be his word, or even the true interpretation of it, which was not expressed previously. Right? They're not doing anything new in the councils. The reason for councils, at least those that deserve the name, right? not everything that gets called a council really should be called a council, they're saying, was partly to refute heresies and to give public confession of faith, Right? So not to make new doctrine, but to clarify the true doctrine that has already been around against people who are messing it up, on the one hand. And second, for good policy and order. So in the ancient church, one of the big topics in the councils was when do you celebrate Easter? And you had to have complicated astronomical calculations done to identify what Sunday you're going to celebrate Easter. Not that we think any policy or order of ceremonies can be appointed for all ages, times, and places, for as ceremonies which men have devised are but temporal, so they may and ought to be changed when they foster superstition rather than edify the kirk. So, refute heresies and establish good order, but remember that good order has to change according to the time and the place the church finds itself in, and we can't start thinking that doing it a certain way is the way that it has to be done. So that's what they have to say about councils. And that brings us up to the question of the sacraments.
So we're going to end on a theological cliffhanger as well as a biographical cliffhanger <laughs> and come back next week for the exciting conclusion. Right. <laughs> Thank you all. You've been listening to the McCracken cast. I am and hopefully will remain Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself in case you couldn't tell, but the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts. Thank you.